Hello everyone, this is Karin Takar and welcome to the Zenergy Podcast. Over the past decade, India has done an impressive job of integrating renewable energy into its energy mix. For this Fulbright podcast series, I sought to investigate the enabling factors and potential of India's global leadership in renewable energy with the focus on solar. This Fulbright series is broken down into four seasons. In this season, through conversations with leaders who have been instrumental in developing the Indian renewable energy sector, we will highlight how India has managed to integrate 35 gigawatts of solar in just a span of 10 years. We will also explore what these leaders believe the key challenges to be as this sector further develops. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Heyman Sahai, the founding partner of HSA Advocates, which is one of India's leading law firms and most active law firms in the renewable energy space. Mr. Sahai represents many of India's leading renewable energy development companies and recently was the leading representative in India's important Andhra Pradesh case, where the government tried to alter the terms of the power purchase agreement. In this episode, we'll explore Mr. Sahai's views on the present challenges of the India renewable energy sector, and also hear his perspective on the way forward. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Mr. Sahai. Thank you so much, Mr. Sahai, for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. And I want to ask you just briefly to introduce yourself so that listeners can get a little bit of an understanding of what you do and your involvement in the renewable energy sector in India. Could you provide a a brief introduction? Firstly, thanks very much for this interview. Hemant Sahai, I'm a lawyer. I run a law firm. We have a very strong focus on the infrastructure space. And within the infrastructure space, a very strong focus on renewable energy. My personal involvement in the renewable energy space goes back to 2010, when Gujarat started the first major solar program, uh, 963 megawatts of projects, almost 1,000 megawatts. Considering that the total installed capacity in India at that point of time was 30 megawatts, one state coming up with a massive program of 1,000 megawatts was clearly path-breaking. In parallel, I also worked with uh, the Clinton Foundation to set up the first solar parks in India, two in Gujarat and uh, one in Rajasthan. 2010, of course, were pioneering days in many ways. The size and scale of the solar projects were very small in comparison to what we have today. The tariffs were very high, and therefore it was uh, seen at that point of time as still an emerging sector, emerging technology. But uh, interestingly, over the years, as the number of projects that got bid out increased, and the number of investors that came and joined the sector also grew, both domestic and foreign investors, the prices of solar generation started falling. And I think today, you know, 2020 prices, which are you know, lower than conventional energy, conventional thermal energy, even on a pooled basis, you know, the, the solar power specifically is comparable, at least in terms of you know, the generation, generation cost. My journey over the years 
has primarily been assisting the developers and investors, both debt and equity. Of course, I've done a little amount of work with utilities too, the government-owned utilities, the discoms. And therefore, I think I have a fairly broad idea and picture of you know, what is involved. Now, coming specifically to sanctity of contracts, yes, I mean, that has been an issue that has been talked about you know, several times in terms of you know, the discoms, and especially the government, state government-owned distribution utilities reneging on their the contract. And of course, you know, Andhra is the most recent example. Some of it is, I think, unjustified and perhaps, you know, some amount of disputes per se are inherent in any contract, but a blatant disregard to the contract and a blatant, you know, withdrawal from PPA. I think that has perhaps happened for the first time in Andhra Pradesh, and certainly the scale at which it happened is, is unique. So there have been instances in the past, you know, and I think they've been kind of sporadic and isolated, but the court. Interestingly, in each of the instances, the courts have always stepped in and upheld the contracts and preserved the sanctity of contracts. I think as far as Andhra is concerned, I almost call uh, you know, what happened in Andhra Pradesh and the Andhra government as a renegade state because the central government came very, very strongly in support of the PPAs, very strongly in favor of the sector, and actually put in their whole might to make sure that you know, at least the government, state government relents and, and falls in line. It did to a certain extent. Of course, it required a huge amount of you know, effort, including in court. Mm-hmm. But the, the courts in Andhra Pradesh, the High Court, and, and of course, regulatory commissions, uh, they stepped up and uh, made sure that you know, the, the PPAs are enforced. Not as if the, the problem is entirely over. It is still pending in court. But more recently, I think there have been some very strong positive push by the central government to try and make sure that uh, there is not a repeat of the kind uh, that we witnessed in Andhra Pradesh. So overall, I'm still very, very, I would say, confident and bullish in the Indian legal system. Mm-hmm. One does you know, get to encounter some you know, maverick decision makers at the state level. And I think Andhra Pradesh, if one looks at the history, if you just scratch the surface, one will realize that it, the, the whole exercise was just entirely politically motivated, not to say that as a justification, but certainly it's, it's something which the courts and the government recognize and stepped in and have taken steps to remedy. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. And yeah, so I was reading a, the Forum of Regulators meeting minutes and just going to your point of how the central government is really helping generators receive their agreed to terms in the contracts that Secretary of the MNRE stated that CERC may not allow any DISCOM to modify the PPA after it has been signed and implementation has started. However, also through my Fulbright research, I've come across different reports which talk about how DISCOMs often delay payments to generators. And one particular report I recently read stated how generators often, renewable generators receive payments often 10 months after when they're supposed to, whereas more conventional plants, the average delay is only five months. So can you talk about a little bit about this situation and provide more context around this? Thank you. Sure. So this is uh, actually quite an interesting uh, question, but one needs to analyze, you know, the uh, data a little bit more. 
indeed there have been certain places in certain states where delays are inordinate. And indeed there have been a kind of focused, I would say, delays for wind. When you talk about renewables specifically, there have been more delays in wind. Um, so let's look at the overall context. Firstly, some of these issues are state specific. So Maharashtra, for example, sat for a very long time on you know, the invoices of the wind generators. I'm not, I'm not trying, trying to give justification uh, because any delay is unjustified. And by the way, it carries uh, you know, interest as and when they pay. But uh, the point is that uh, it's not as uh, pandemic as uh, one would probably you know, tend to believe at first flush. There are only you know, one or two states which have been culprits in the past. And for very specific reasons. Firstly, Maharashtra actually ended up with a lot more wind than they could manage, than what the grid could manage. So it was a bit of bad planning. And also, they had a lot of state-owned thermal generators that they needed to keep alive and patronize. And therefore, to that extent, there was that inherent, I would say, bias uh, against the wind generators. I was obviously advising a lot of the wind generators, but for various reasons, most of the wind generators did not want to escalate the matter to a formal dispute and take it to court. Because if uh, the matter had indeed gone to court, I think the matter would have got resolved much earlier. In the end, Maharashtra did manage to raise certain debt, uh, the distribution companies, they raised debt, and they did clear out a large chunk of these uh, receivables. Um, so th that is one part. The second thing is one has to understand the motivation, if at all, to renege on the renewable payments specifically. Now, while, say, five, six, seven years ago, that perhaps would have been more, the chance would have been much higher because the retail, uh, the tariffs, the generation tariffs of solar was significantly higher. You know, in 2010, the tariffs were 16, 17 rupees uh, per unit compared to, uh, you know, three and a half, four rupees for thermal generation. So there was a strong policy push, certain amount of, you know, state support to actually get, you know, the discounts to start buying solar power. But today, solar tariffs are cheaper than thermal. So therefore, if one has to compare, if I were in discount shoes with a certain amount of cash, you know, pressures on the cash flows, they would want to prioritize the cheaper power, which today happens to be solar power. So therefore, there are today no instances of delayed payments or defaults on solar which are kind of specific or targeted to solar. There are delays, then there are overall delays. And I don't think there is any specific priority that is given to thermal over and above renewable. I think there are delays now, kind of more or less the same kinds of delays. And that is, that's an inherent problem in the uh, current uh, structure in the distribution you know, licenses, the discount. They're not able to manage their cash flow. So of course, on a, <clears throat> as an aside, the central government is doing, you know, Several other things now. They're bringing in massive liquidity into the distribution company's hands through PFC, Power Finance Corporation, and uh, which are intended or, or designed to be used only to clear out IPP deals. And also steps are being taken to privatize you know, distribution businesses, or it is introduced private capital in the distribution businesses. So those steps, it takes a time to mature and unfold. And you know, I have a role to play in this because I'm helping the you know, government of India, the Ministry of Power, draft the amendment to the legislation in the context of you know, privatization of discount. And I'm likely to be involved in some of the privatizations that take place. 
But that's, like I said, a solution to a problem, which is a longer-term solution. On an immediate basis, the Ministry of Power has also introduced certain rules which mandate that the discoms will need to open letters of credit or at least start paying in advance every month. I saw that. they buy the power. Yeah. So these are the kinds of things which are being uh, done as a bit of carrot and stick, some amount of incentivization to improve efficiencies, reduce losses, and therefore improve the cash flows for the discoms, and therefore try and alleviate the overall problem of uh, payment to generators. Uh, the long-standing issue of you know balancing the books, you know, has not been sorted out, unfortunately, because the power sector reform in India, which dates back to the you know Electricity Act 2000, and uh, over a period of time, the focus on bringing private investment, private efficiency, private sector capital, has succeeded exceedingly well in the generation and the transmission sector, but in the distribution sector. Uh, the political economy, the way it is in the country, unfortunately, has continued to remain in the hands of you know, state governments. And while there have been significant improvements in the operations of the discount, but the cash flow management still continues to be a big issue. And that's primarily because the cost of power delivered to the consumer is not resulting in recovery of full costs. And uh, therefore, the discounts are always working you know, in, in terms of a cash flow lag. So they're actually putting out more power and uh, paying out more to the generators and transmission companies than what they're able to collect from consumers. Uh, part of it is inefficiency, part of it is the losses, but a large part of it has got to do with rationalization of tariffs, which the you know the political economy has not permitted. So that will, of course, require the next phase of, so to say, uh, reform in the power sector, which is now started. And the central government is quite you know, committed to bringing that uh, change by, like I said, amending the law and almost, you know, forcing through a certain amount of privatization. But just to answer your original question, yes, indeed, over the last 10 years, there have been some uh, targeted delays, primarily for wind, not so much for solar in the recent years, because the price of solar power is actually equal to or less than the uh, cost of, you know, thermal power. And therefore, there is an incentive for the discounts to continue to buy solar power. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. That actually mostly answered my next question. However, I would like to hear some more insight around this issue of the tariff structure in terms of how it doesn't appropriately compensate discounts fully. And I know one large issue of this stems from the agricultural tariff which is supposed to be subsidized by the states. And often what happens in practice, according to some conversations I had, I could be um, wrong about this, but the state often has a delay in payments to the DISCOM when they're supposed to be subsidizing these consumer groups. And I would like to hear your thoughts around this. And also was reading that the Ministry of Power is potentially thinking about direct transfers from the state to the consumer as opposed to from discount to consumer and then state to discount? Is this being talked about? Certainly. So, you know, when we talk about subsidy, there are two kinds of subsidies. One is a subsidy to be given by the state government, of course, to targeted uh, consumers, whether it's agricultural or, or, you know, below the poverty line, the poorer uh, consumers. The second is the cross-subsidies between different consumer classes. So traditionally in India, and you know, I don't think that's the most efficient way to do it, unfortunately, that's what we are doing, is 
the industry and commercial they subsidize domestic and agriculture and so to say the other poorer sections of uh, society the poorer consumers as a result what happens is the industry is landed up with the most expensive tariff industry and commercial and again this has a cascading effect because this actually on a global stage puts our manufacturing at a disadvantage because it ends up becoming much more expensive than you know other competing nations at some stage that has to be reversed the second subsidy is what you've talked about in terms of the state government saying i will give so much of subsidy in absolute numbers which is intended for a certain section of the society the poorer section or agriculture for that matter now uh, this figure is the balancing figure so when the regulator fixes tariff for a distribution utility at discom it is required to ensure that is annual revenue requirement which is to be scrutinized by the regulator and approved which includes cost of procurement of power and of course the operating cost plus the return on uh, on equity to the discom is balanced by the revenues in, and which is the tariff structure that it determines and the balancing figure or not the balanced figure or the figure that it uh, the regulator reduces it by is the subsidy that is committed by the state and you are absolutely right most of the states have announced subsidies and the regulators have taken those subsidies in consideration while determining the tariffs and the uh, annual revenue requirements of the discoms but typically those subsidies have either been delayed or not disbursed by the state which means that in cash terms that leaves a huge black hole undercovered costs for the discom now this is a cascading effect which over the past several years has been carried forward so therefore the regulator what it does is for the next one year it says okay the undercovered revenue of last year i'm carrying forward now this cascading effect is called regulatory asset which ultimately today is becoming a huge ticking time bomb so what the government is doing now the central government is doing now is saying that listen hang on the subsidy that the state government commits they will either disburse it in advance or they will provide a direct benefit transfer a dbt which means the persons you want to give this uh, subsidy to you will transfer the money to their account as far as the discoms are concerned they will get full tariff and they will raise the electricity bills directly on the consumers on full tariff which the regulator fix fixes and if there is any subsidy that the state wants to give they will transfer the money to the consumer directly to their bank accounts if that happens then at least the discoms are insulated from this whole risk of under recovery so uh, i think these things are being implemented these should help the discoms improve their cash flows and their collections i see I want to end this interview on because I know you represent a diverse array of clients both within India but also clients who participate in renewable energy abroad. I would like to ask you, do you think renewable energy will be a great vehicle for India to improve its leadership position in the world and are companies who operate within india are they competitive with international companies within solar specifically just like to hear your thoughts on this oh, certainly 
So, you know, there are multiple dimensions to, to uh, this question. So at a geopolitical level and a geostrategic level, India certainly has a massive role to play. India is on the member of the International Solar Alliance. India is running currently the world's largest renewable energy program. No caveats, no post-ops, no qualifications. So we're going to uh, be targeting a 450 gigawatt for the next uh, you know, eight years, uh, next 10 years, which is larger than anything else that's happening anywhere else in the world, including in China. In fact, in China, the, the solar and the renewable program is now on a declining trend. That is one aspect. So therefore, there is massive amounts of capital, foreign capital, private equity capital, long-term annuity yeah, capital from pension funds that is available to invest in India. India as a market by itself is significant enough for uh, to be able to uh, absorb all of this investment and the generation that is going to be uh, put in place. At an international level, I think India's uh, role will, of course, you know, depend on, on different considerations, not on what it does within the country, but what is it able to do uh, to influence the renewable space, renewable sector in other jurisdictions, which really means equipment. On wind, India is, of course, a net exporter. So India manufactures more turbines than anywhere else. Perhaps maybe China and India are you know, up there. But in manufacturing, India is self-sufficient on turbines. It is exporting turbines. It's exporting blades. It has a lot of technology that it has developed, including now moving to the next phase of the larger size of wind turbines. So two and a half to three megawatt is the next phase. We only have a three, three and a half megawatt turbine, which is being experimented. So each of the blades is about 70 to 80 meters long. Now, this requires different technology, different skills, different manufacturing capability. So in addition to the domestic wind market in India, India is a net exporter of wind turbines. So we've got the big guys, the GEs and the Siemens and the Mesas, they're all uh, manufacturing in India. Plus, of course, they are domestic manufacturers. So therefore, that is one area where India can dominate. However, when it comes to solar, China continues to be the powerhouse. It is the largest manufacturer of solar modules uh, and solar cells. In India, I think as a result of the last six odd months of you know, the crisis, the health crisis, which started in China. I think India is sensing an opportunity and increasingly seeing you know, not just discussions, but also serious talk about you know, investments in India in the solar cell manufacturing space. Now, in the solar modules and the solar sector, the most critical technology, which is capital intensive and technology intensive, is solar cells. The solar cells are then aggregated into these modules. And then, of course, there are a balance of systems which are, you know, inverters, et cetera, where, of course, you know, the technology is freely available. But the technology on solar cells is controlled by a handful of companies globally. So to be able to get those companies to come and invest in India, we need to create an entire ecosystem, which I think, you know, there is an opportunity at this point of time. If India is able to crack that code, uh, and I think all the elements are in place, all the right ingredients seem to be in place right now, because not only is there a massive domestic demand, but that India could end up becoming a serious competitor to uh, the traditional manufacturers of solar cells, which is China and uh, Taiwan and, you know, to a lesser extent, Malaysia and Japan. And India could actually create an ecosystem to be able to compete on quality and price. If that happens, then I think India is going to become a dominant player, global dominant player in the entire renewable energy uh, space. 
Thank you so much, Mr. Sahai, for your time and your great insights. Really appreciate this. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And do check out the show notes for more information on my guest. See you next time. Thank you.